All right, if I can call us here in the room uh, back to our seats. And we'll sing this musical refrain as we move into the teaching text. We'll sing together here. Shout for joy for the Lord desires to be with you. And by his love he will do the work of rebuilding. through 12. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. The word of the Lord. Shout for joy for the Lord desires to be with you. love he will do the work of rebuilding well good morning Mars Hill grace and peace be with you it uh, yeah, it's been a while since I've seen your full faces welcome Welcome for all of you watching online. I can't see you, but you can see me. So glad that you're tuning in. Thanks for being here this morning. Okay, scene one. Are you ready? It's the early 21st century. Okay, it's 2003. And in those days, I dreamed of the object of every teenaged girl's desire. A translucent, touch tone, landline phone. <laughs> I had begged my parents for one, along with my own phone line, because, y'all know this, with the dial-up situation, it was really hard to log on to AOL Instant Messenger, track Angel 41, if you must know, and also do anything else, right? It was nearly impossible, okay? So finally, one day, at my parents' request, they asked me to go upstairs, and lo and behold, there was a sweet, sweet ring. And I ran to my bedroom, and I picked it up, and it was my dad on the other end of the line. Finally, today was the day. But they said, listen, we want you to enjoy the phone, Ashley, but there's just one rule. No calls allowed after 10 p.m. 
Great, mom and dad, that's great, fine, this is gonna be wonderful, whatever you say. Okay, ready, scene two. Imagine teenaged Ashley crouched under the bedspread in the dark. Guess what time it is? 10.06, I heard it. 10.06 p.m. Just yapping, but in a whisper though, because mom and dad can't hear me, they're downstairs. It's not that much after 10 p.m. anyway. It's gonna be fine, y'all, everything's fine, it's fine, it's fine, everything's fine. Scene three, Ashley's crying. She's tearfully carrying her entire tower of compact discs with brandy on top downstairs to her parents' room. Do you think she's going anywhere with that new driver's permit? No, no. Do you know what else was unplugged from the wall and carried downstairs to mom and dad's room? Say it with me, the landline phone. And I am just devastated. This feels like the worst day of my life. Those two weeks felt like 40 years in the lonely wilderness, okay? But nowadays, when people ask me about my relationship with my parents, you know what I don't retell in detail? That one time I was grounded in high school for talking on the phone past 10 p.m because it would be a complete misrepresentation of the full nature of my relationship with my parents, a relationship that is rich, more complex, beyond just one consequence in high school. But don't we do this with God sometimes? Where the relationship is defined by the disappointment we believe he feels toward us by how we've let him down. Or we see mention of wrath or anger and we're hijacked by it, stopped in our tracks by the severity, unable to process how a merciful, kind God could also be so judgy. But what if, Mars Hill, God wanted to start mending that instinct in us today, where we didn't just see a relationship with him through the lens of consequence, but in a richer way, one that grasped more of the fullness of his character. We are almost done with this series called Dreams and Visions, exploring the sometimes unusual and strange dreams and visions of the prophet Zechariah. And here is the truth. There are some hard parts. God scattering his people and plundering the nations in chapter two, the curse going out over the land in chapter five, here in chapter seven, where the prophet mentioned how the generation before made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Fun fact, this is the first time that references the Holy Spirit as having inspired the former prophets. What a day to mention this on Pentecost. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. I want to acknowledge a couple things before we move on. 
some of you here this morning or who are tuning in, this is the hard part for you in your relationship with God through Christ. This is the hard part that you've wrestled with, feeling the anger of God towards you or not being able to fully understand what that means for the rest of the world. It's understandable. Some of you are here or watching online and your understanding of God's anger is a direct reflection of someone else's. A spouse, a parent, a teacher, a coach, some other current or former authority figure in your life. And because that person treated you that way, God must not feel too different. But let me say this loud and clear. God is not like them. Amen. Amen. See, here in chapter 7, there were some Jews in leadership about 10 miles north of Jerusalem who sent delegates, and those delegates wanted to know if they needed to keep observing a particular fast. Israel had been observing four fasts since the destruction of Jerusalem. But now that the temple was almost completed, we're about two years out from the temple being completed, they still want to know if those fasts were appropriate. Was it appropriate to remember what had been destroyed? But if you read in the text, it doesn't seem like they really want to observe the fast, does it? Where they're asking, hey, should we, should we observe that fast? Should we, should we do it? See, fasting was meant to draw the hearts of the people closer to God in humility. But what's interesting is God never asked them to keep but one fast, the Day of Atonement. But in order to maybe quicken the realization of the rebuilding, the Israelites were observing four every year for almost 70 years. That is a lot. That is exhausting. So the question is asked by the delegate representing the people, should we keep doing this? And the answer that comes from the word of the Lord through the prophet Zechariah is in large part unsatisfying. Because he asks a different a deeper question. In response, he asks, was it really for me? In the next verse, verse six, it's clear. Both in their fasting and their feasting, in their fasting and their celebration, it was all for themselves. Author Stephen Miller comments on this verse. He says, selfishly, the Jewish people desire to see their homeland prosper once more. They long to see Jerusalem return to its former glory and to worship in a magnificent temple again. You know what? I think we long for some of the same thing. For home, our families, our nation, our churches, 
to return to the olden days of glory and to bask in the reality of what once was before it was all broken. Marcel, to be very clear, this might just intersect our story too. Some of us want to go back. And let me say this, that is not a bad desire. That is not a bad desire. But the question for us is the same question God asked the people through Zechariah. Who is this for? If we did go back, would it be for you? Or would it be for me? See, good things can be wrapped in warped intentions and motive. And God was saying to the exiles, do you really want to repent and turn your hearts back to me in your fasting and in your religious ceremony? Or do you just want me to provide relief to the discomfort? Do you really want to seek my heart and align your hearts once again to who I am and to what my ways require? Or do you just want me to release the pressure and get you there a little quicker? If we are going to understand God's anger toward the past generation here in Zechariah, we can't just look at the consequence. But the question, who's it for? And that question points us first to covenant. God's judgment is grounded in covenant, not just the consequence. Rewind with me back to Genesis 17. Remember when Abram fell face down before God and God promised him he would establish his covenant as an everlasting covenant between himself and Abraham and Abraham's descendants after him for the generations to come. Throughout the Old Testament, what happened? God's people are delivered out of Egypt. They are led by Moses in the wilderness and they are disobedient. They are stubborn. They worship idols. They grumble. God calls them a stiff-necked people multiple times. They were told to walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. We have the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and then before they enter the promised land, Deuteronomy 8.18, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors. The people of God were given a great promise, a great gift in the context of covenant relationship, but again and again and again, they chose destruction and disobedience. Here's what we have to keep in mind. Covenant involves two parties, at least, right? Not just God's promise and faithfulness to us, but our life and lived response to God. It is not a one-way relationship like the free sample carts at Costco, where you are filled, gratified, and off the hook. You can leave. 
and still be satisfied. Covenant is not like that. The imagery coming out of the prophet Hosea has really helped me grasp this. If you have time, read the entire book. It's beautiful. But God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. Any parents have your heart pricked hearing those words? Because for you, you know what it's like to love your child. And yet it seems like the more you move toward them, the farther and the faster they ran away. And perhaps you're not a parent, but you think of this through the lens of someone you love. I know I did. That person is quite close to me. And at one point, I thought things were going well that she was finally going to decide to choose wholeness and health and safety, only to months later discover she didn't choose a life-giving choice after all. And I'll tell you what my response was. It wasn't indifferent. I was not unmoved. So angry. I was so angry because it felt like she was rejecting the real good love that was available to her in her in loving relationship. And she chose trash instead. And if I feel like that on behalf of someone I love, how much more must God for God's people, for you and for me. Author and evangelist Becky Pippert in her book, Hope Has Its Reason states, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition of the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And here's what's hard, church. Here's what's hard for me to say. Sometimes the cancer isn't just out there. It's in me. so easy to talk about the cancer out there that's eating away at the human race. But if I'm really honest, sometimes that cancer is in me. When my answer to who's it for is boldly answered, it's for me, my comfort, my pride, my glory. You see, the former generation had themselves become a self-indulgent cancer to God's desired order, which leads us to the second truth. 
God's judgment is grounded in perfect justice. God's judgment is grounded in perfect justice. God cannot, hear this, God cannot be partially just. So as we call for the justice in the broken, dark areas of the world, God also calls for us to live lives that both proclaim and reflect him as just. God is merciful, yes. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love as we sang this morning, yes. God is kind, God's grace overflows, God's character is not in conflict. And God's grace and mercy should not absolve our worship and obedience, but compel it. I think of Paul's words in Romans 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. By no means. God very clearly spelled out for his people what their life together should look like as they were eager for the temple's completion, as they were waiting for on that day, as Troy talked about a couple of weeks ago. He says, I have some regulations and some invitations for how you should live together in the meantime. We are not going to sit back and passively wait for this thing. I'm going to ask your heart of you, and I'm going to ask your heart of you in relationship with me and in relationship of each other. They were to do four things. And as you see this picture um, come up, this picture is by an Israeli artist named Shai Yosef. We have one of his paintings in our house. I look at it every day. But this painting is entitled Children of the Heart, and I thought it was just perfect for this morning because I thought, may that be our desire, to be children of the heart of God, and not just children who do the religious thing for God. He asks four things. One, administer true justice. This included the judicial sense, yes, but also it was a call to restore peace and harmony where there had been conflict not just by the official judges in the community, but by everyone. Everyone was tasked to restore harmony where there had been conflict. And they were to do it in a way that bound people together as people are bound to God in covenant. Relationship with each other was supposed to mirror relationship with God. Does our justice look like that? Secondly, they were supposed to show mercy and compassion. In some translations, they use the word kindness or chesed, which is love and loyalty in the context of marriage, friendship, and with allies. Joyce Baldwin, a theologian and commentator that we've been reading a lot for this series as a teaching team, she notes that where a covenant had been established, chesed between parties, kindness between parties was binding. It was binding. It was meant to be a response to a kindness that had been shown to them. So the people of God were asked to show mercy and compassion because God time and time and time again had shown mercy and compassion toward them. Do some of us need to remember the mercy and compassion shown to us this morning? 
Have we forgotten the richness and the depth of his mercies available to us every single day? Third, they were to not oppress the widow and the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. See, this command was in contrast to the exploitation of weakness and those who had no bargaining power. The widow and the orphan, they were defenseless. They were financially insecure. The foreigner was someone temporary in the land who might just be taken advantage of because they were different. The poor were at the mercy of the rich. We have to ask church, who is exploited? in our midst. Who are the exploited of our day? God called for the people of God to not oppress those who are on the fringes. Baldwin offers again, human clannishness, I think she made that up, human clannishness and the love of gain were to give place among God's people to generosity, friendliness, and practical help. This was justice in God's sight. And finally, they were to not plot evil against each other. He forbade wrongdoing to others. Church, do our religious rituals, the things that we might do all the time, the, the observations, the feasts, the fasting, the disciplines that we engage, the traditions that we hold, do they call us back to this kind of life together with God? Does our current day pursuit of justice for hashtag names of people of color, the unborn, the death row inmate, the wrongfully accused, the homeless, is that justice postured for our own pride and satisfaction? Does it actively and actually restore peace where there's been conflict? Is kindness shown in our version of justice today? Are our actions exploitative or do they allow exploitation to persist? Is our brand of justice punitive and vengeance seeking or do we actually live lives that trust that God's justice truly is the only perfect kind of justice and is moving all things toward restoration? If you haven't watched last week, please do. Tim talks about this in his sermon. Or are we giving into religious checkboxes and virtue signaling hoping God accepts it. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, states this, if I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. A loss of belief in a God of judgment can lead to brutality. Here's what I have to understand in my place of economic, educational privilege in some regards. God's judgment is actually good news for the defenseless and the marginalized. God's judgment can't just be about the consequence then. 
It is grounded in covenant love for his people and is an outworking of perfect justice on their behalf. It's part of what will make all things right, not only reserved for arbitrary punishment when we get it wrong. As I think of my parents taking away my translucent touchtone phone, I remember this. It wasn't just about them grounding me. It was about the promise in the context of the gift that I was given. I would enjoy the gift of that privilege if I kept my end of the deal. The gift given out of their love for me and desire for my good. And, let's face it, justice was served. I did not do what I said I would do. And the gift was withdrawn. We don't like to think about that part. That accountability is part of life with God because it takes two parties in covenant, right? So in this way, we can see glimpses of, of God's character through human relationship, but even when our human relationships have warped our idea of his character, God is consistent and faithful even when we are not. Our God keeps his end of the deal even when we don't. And therefore, I'm glad our God isn't a God of partial justice, only preferencing the punishment and not our very hearts. So a couple of questions for us this morning, church. The first is this. This, kept, this word kept coming to me as I was preparing. What is God longing to heal in you today? When you formerly thought about God's judgment walking around with a heavy straight jacket of shame on you because you felt like God was mad, and that was God's only posture, what does he want to heal in you today? What does he want to bring into right alignment about this idea of judgment, this renewed sense of covenant and justice being a part of who God is and what he longs to be in relationship? with us? Does he want to give you new lenses this morning? Second question, when you think about life lived in the now, as we too await full restoration, where's the spirit pointing to aspects of your life, asking who's that for? That thing that you do every morning, the ways that you try to appeal to or appease God, maybe some things that you've done since you were young growing up in the church. And when you look back on it, you might ask, why do I do that? Is that for me? So I feel justified in my relationship with God, like I feel like a good Christian, or is that really for God? Is my heart beating quickly for who he is? Does my heart long to be in covenant relationship and understand his ways more? Do I come alive in his presence? Maybe today is the perfect day to ask, who's that for? In our generation, we have the benefit of knowing the narrative of the cross. And here's what's true. 
I thought of the hymn, In Christ Alone, as I was preparing for this morning. And in one part of the song, we sing, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. When in Luke's gospel, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. That cup was the same one mentioned by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 51, where he said, awake, awake. Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. This cup of wrath meant for us, Jesus accepted. Amen. Hallelujah. And he drank it to the filthy dregs, the very last drop. So here at the table, we eat and we drink as a reminder of God's love and covenant with us. We're reminded of God's justice fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice. And as the exiles awaited the restoration of the temple, we too await the full restoration of all things. So church, it is with one voice that I say the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, listen for it, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he fully restores, until he returns. And so we pray in faith, Holy Spirit, spirit that inspired the prophets and spoke through them that same spirit, would you come rest on this meal and be for us nourishment spiritually in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that by your spirit, we may take this meal and remember. May we in Christ's name, amen. So friends, we are joined by brothers and sisters all across the world who in different contexts hear and read and receive this covenant, but they believe in the same mystery that we do. And so we proclaim this mystery on this Pentecost, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Mars Hill, all is ready, it's ready for you.
receive joyfully who you are, the body of Christ.